0: Welcome to Impostors Anonymous. For those of you who used to be somewhat regular listeners of the show, welcome back. Season 2 is officially underway, and though the fundamentals will remain the same, there will be some noteworthy changes. Of course, to any first time listeners, as always, I highly recommend you take a moment to jump back to the intro of the project. It should be listed as a trailer for the show at the bottom of the list of episodes in your podcast player. It's only about 7 minutes long and provides some pretty important context about the nature of this show, its aims, and how it differs from most, so again, I advise you starting there so that the premise of this project isn't totally lost on you. To my returning listeners, thanks for sticking around through the past couple of months, which have been pretty hot and cold from a content perspective. In short, a lot has changed since I decided to give this project a go. There have been plenty of ups and downs personally, and for the most part I think this show has reflected that, which honestly has probably been for the best. Much has been learned, and many of my perspectives have evolved. The same can probably be said about each of my guests, and hopefully you all as well. Which brings me to what will be different this time around. If there's anything to be gleaned from this project, it's that as individuals, our identities and perspectives are in a constant state of fluctuation and irreducible nuance. We're never quite the person we were a moment ago. Everything we experience changes us. Each conversation I have on this show is just a snapshot, a irrepeatable moment in time, a brief glimpse of what individuals can bring to the table. At the end of each episode, I could probably roll back the tape, start from scratch and have a new conversation of a completely different nature, tone, and theme. So I think that about sums up where the project is heading. I guess I'll resist my inclination towards overexposition and wrap things up here, but one final update, I will begin trying to incorporate the audience's questions into episodes, both for recordings with recurring guests as well as solo Ask Me Anything episodes, which I'll be recording the first of soon. So if there's anything you'd like to hear discussed or you'd like me to speak to specifically, please do give us a follow on Instagram or Twitter and send your questions. The audience is in huge here, so there's a good chance your questions or topics will be featured. If you have anything at all, don't hesitate. I'd love to hear from you. And on that note, thanks for giving this a shot, and I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey.
2: Just a story we tell ourselves. I am the smartest man alive! How do we know if uh, we're in control? All right. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Adam, thanks for joining. How are you feeling today?
1: Good. Thanks, Brandon. Great to be back.
2: Yeah. Glad to have you. Season two, getting things started. Uh, it's, it's been exciting to get back into a rhythm with things, and I guess I didn't even really intend for it to be this way. But I guess you were my second episode, right? My first yeah, episode, right. <laughs> I just recorded again with Josh, and uh, I'm recording again with you. So we're we're kind of in the in the same sequence of season one. So it, it kind of just worked out. But
1: um, awesome, the seamless transition.
2: Yeah, uh, we like it when it works out that way. But, um, yeah, a lot a lot has changed since, since the last time we, we got on these mics. Uh, <laughs> some, That's for, right. some for good, some for bad, as always. But how are, how are you generally feeling about the world and, and the state of things right now?
1: Well, I guess if we're going to kind of use a comparison point, uh, I was on about nine months ago, just mm-hmm. I think first day of the new year, maybe it was January 1st or 2nd. So I guess compared to then, I feel a little bit better about the state of everything. Obviously, things are overall, I think, I guess we're talking like geopolitically still very, you know, delicate, tenuous, I guess would be the words (laughs) I'd use to describe the situation. But overall, I think there's still, to some degree, a little bit more stability Mm. uh, than there was then. But yeah, that'd be kind of the overall takeaway, maybe. Gotcha. Yeah, no,
2: I mean, I'm with you on that. I think that's a... That's a fair response. It's it sometimes <laughs> hard to to really know how to feel, honestly, given the the ebbs and flows, and and how it's there's just always there's always things to be grateful for. More, there's always things to feel positive about, and then there's always shit that is just uh, <laughs> a bit mind-boggling and and uh, a bit devastating to to constantly be exposed to. So, but I guess to give the audience a little bit of context, we essentially set this conversation up weeks ago a little bit predicated on a previous conversation, another episode, actually, that, that you listened to, which we, I guess for any of those who haven't, it's the, it's the episode with Alejandro uh, called The Tightrope of Modern Politics. And I think the, the title is apt. <laughs> we, we get into just the, the political climate here in the U.S., uh, as well as in Venezuela and Spain and some other places in the world, and maybe what's what's going wrong, what's going right, what trends we noticed and, and what we kind of think about where things are going. So in the name of the, the current political climate, and as that's evolved over the last few months, even in the last few years, I guess I'm just curious, because I know the last time we spoke, irrespective of that conversation, as well as in that conversation, I'd say the general tone wasn't wasn't the most positive, right? It wasn't it wasn't uh, the most excited in regards to the trajectory that we're on. But I- I'm curious, with that in mind, if there's any, if you feel like there's any signs of progress in the overall health of our political climate or anything worth feeling good about, maybe we can start there.
1: So the short answer, I guess, would be no. <laughs> okay that's fair I want to um so yeah i think that well looking at it from the top i guess when you look like the current president and everything like that regardless of your political affiliation opinions leanings all that i think it's factually accurate to say that it's more stable and there is general mm. set of expectations on what you can see coming from the government day to day so sure. i think that that's positive overall, in my opinion, right? People have very, clearly very different opinions about that. But I think that's sort of why I don't really think that there has been much improvement. Um, And I think Mm. that's kind of one of the major shifts I've had in terms of, I guess, opinions or beliefs coming out from the last time we spoke, which was three or four days before the insurrection. Um, Mm. And prior to that happening, I think that was really a shift of no longer believing in this Trump as a straw man kind of thing. Mm. Why that's a much more systemic problem that runs much deeper than just this figurehead. And mm. so obviously, I kind of, to some degree, didn't think it was, you know, just Trumpism, for example. But certainly, I attributed a lot more of the behavior to that and the sort of cult of personality that took over politics. But when you see what's unfolded over the last nine months, and that things haven't really changed on that front, you still, even with His absence, the beliefs and the same Mm. level of extremism, the same fervor still exists and is actually considering that we have a, you know, a government that is, you know, the House is majority Democrat. So is the Senate. Well, actually, the Senate's not right. So given the percentage of the government that is Democratic, it's still surprising to see the level of effectiveness that the the beliefs of the previous administration have had during this last nine months. So that's been Mm. I think overall kind of surprising, I would have thought there'd be kind of a much larger shift after um, those events, but it hasn't really Mm -hmm. happened. So I think that sort of drives most of the pessimism that Mm -hmm. I would see would say about things haven't really improved or changed.
2: And then to what would you potentially attribute the the lack of progress or the lack of a transition on that front, If, if that was something that you were expecting? Do you, and I guess maybe to make it a little bit easier to answer, do you feel like to some extent that could be brought to the feet of the current administration and how, I guess, relatively moderate it is on, on, on the spectrum? Or would you say it's it's more just a, a reflection of the, the political climate as a whole in the aftershock, if you will, from, from the previous...
1: I think the fact that the current administration is pretty moderate sort of informs more of my pessimism, if anything, actually, because you would Mm -hmm. think that this would be sort of the person and the administration in the best position to sort of bridge the gap as someone Mm -hmm. who's been relatively non-considered non-extreme on either side of the aisle for so many years. Mm -hmm. And so to see that even someone with those set of beliefs has been, I think, largely... In that respect, largely ineffective at, mm. you know, I wouldn't say bridging the gap in terms of opinions and beliefs about, you know, certain issues, because everyone's always gonna have different opinions. And I think it's more about still not having people agree to the same set of facts. And right. how, you know, just recently the scandal, the most recent scandal is people taking horse dewormer to cure their COVID, but they don't trust the government to take a vaccine. And mm. so I think that's a sort of an example that points to there's really been no change in the fact that we don't have um, a shared set of, not even beliefs is more broad, just a shared set of reality of what is true, what is not mm. true on the most fundamental levels. I think there's actually only one place where that still exists, which is interesting. We can maybe touch on that later, Where mm. there, but it certainly doesn't exist in politics right? or in anything that could be eventually viewed as political which i think is interesting it's like there are certain issues that aren't inherently political but because of a a buzzword that is attached to that issue you just it becomes political right which i think is also interesting
2: yeah yeah i mean we've certainly entered a an era of, of virtually everything being a being at least perceived as a political issue on on some level or another. And I think there are some positives to that. I, I personally think it's overwhelmingly negative, but I, I can't necessarily say that I speak for everyone on that Fred. Um, But even that being said, I think there's something you said there that maybe we can pin down a little bit more, though I would like to come back to the fact of, I guess, the the essential moderate nature of the current administration and how that's played out and how I maybe thought or hoped it would, but do you think that the just the degradation of our information landscape, the, the fact that misinformation is, is so common, uh, the fact of what we now see on social media and the products of that, do you, maybe maybe a better question is how much of that do you perceive as the problem? Let's just say we could eliminate it tomorrow. We we could delete. We could you know uh, let's just say abolish. I know it's a strong word these days, but <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> we could Talk about buzzwords, right? <laughs> these we could abolish Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Uh, we could get rid of it, and we could introduce some sort of broadly accepted fact-checking information landscape. Restore some sort of faith in our institutions do you feel like that would solve the problem or do you feel like it runs deeper or there's other more important or at least relevant ancillary problems
1: i do think that that is the most significant problem that you're kind of identifying but i think that the solution that you've kind of outlined there is almost impossible because of what the problem is because for let's say Twitter, Facebook, right? all these sources that typically spread the most information are replaced by some sort of government endorsed fact checking, <laughs> you know, operation, <laughs> right. I think. Some 1984 shit. First of all that, but then even uh, people don't trust the government at all, so I don't think it would be accepted. And I think that's generally mm-hmm. true across both parties. You have, as you get further to like the, I guess, the bases of both parties, the distrust for government deepens to a degree mm-hmm. that anything that would say, you know, this is government backed or government funded or government approved, would kind of inherently create the distrust mm. that we're kind of speaking to. So I think it would have to kind of, I, that's, I think that those kind of solutions are always the trickiest when it's a cultural problem that you have to somehow address. Right. And I think that's sort of, it runs deep and it's much more of a cultural issue with distrust of government. I think COVID has really shown that more than anything else, right? With, I think the number I saw yesterday was 70 million Americans still not vaccinated and the article title being that we can't booster our way out of this pandemic. So Mm. I think that's sort of a kind of one thing that you can point to to say that it runs much deeper than just like getting a new source for information that is generally better at fact checking. Because I'm sure Mm. there's things out there, there's fact checking websites. I know during political debates I've seen in the past, they actually have a current fact check machine running as the debate is going so you can see And all that stuff, I think that stuff is out there, but I think it's more about the problem of it, the trust in it, right? There's no kind of more trust in that versus someone's blog or someone's perfect, you know, someone's podcast, you know, for example, there isn't really necessary. I don't think people really care about the, the source of the information as much because you really have to look into it. Mm. so deeply to really get the right to really understand if that source is accurate for the specific thing you're looking at. And if you've already done that level of research and went into that level of detail, then you're not the audience that we're talking about that mm. is distrusting these institutions or things in the first place. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a very complicated problem because not to paint too broad of strokes, but I think historically, There has been a high level of trust in our institutions in in many forms, and that's what most people fell back on, whether that be science broadly, um, what the research, the the broadly accepted research generally points to uh, our, our public health, our higher education systems, our government itself, all institutions where generally levels of trust were quite high. And I think all of those, somewhat simultaneously, have have lost high degrees of trust from the public. Some some of it is is uh, I guess I'll say reasonably justified. It's it's not like our institutions haven't given people reason not to trust them, and it's it's very hard for people to see inconsistencies, to see mistakes, and to not just say, okay, well, if you can make a mistake here if you can do something shady here, how how can I trust you at all? And I think that's where the slippery slope sort of begins where someone makes one mistake or there's a well-intended or potentially well-intended initiative piece of information, whatever it is that comes out and people realize, wow, like that, that was shitty. That was patently false. That was, that had ulterior motives. And for some portion of the population, It just takes that one time right i mean not to make it about like interpersonal relationships per se but i think it's similar that you know you you break someone's trust one time even the context of a relationship you you cheat you lie whatever it is it happens one time and i think there's a certain portion of the population that says okay let's look at the broader picture and say uh, is this consistent was this a one-off uh, not to come come on either side of that and get myself in any trouble, but it's I think some people are willing to say, okay, largely this has been true. Largely this has been trustworthy. I believe in the motives behind what's happening here and I think it's more wrong than right and I think there's a portion of the population that just says burn it all down because it's been wrong once and, and on on a yeah. very simple level, I can't blame people just for that because i get that one violation of of trust is very hard to come back from and there's there's many instances of that across all of these institutions that i've mentioned um so it's it's often a very difficult argument to to try to make that there should be totally blind and complete trust of our institutions but I don't know if that's a a problem that that you' faced in discussing with with people who seem to have a very high level of distrust or if it's something that you feel like there's a a a way to address that very visceral reaction or that loss of um uh, i guess trust for for lack of a better word
1: yeah, I think it's in some ways I think at least looking at what you maybe see on social media or in the news overall, I think it's a little bit of an overstated problem based on who is actually the echo chamber of who is on those platforms. One thing that I was recently reading about, which is interesting, is that political engagement uh, basically triples among people who are in the $100,000 plus earning group versus Mm. people who make less than 40. You see the level of political engagement go up drastically. And this is true kind of across every type of statistics you look at political engagement from whether it be online or in person or petitions or basically every form of that. And I think what you see a lot more among the folks that I think for multiple generations who have lived in America, who have Mm -hmm. had that, you know, opportunity to have, you know, hundred K plus salaries and lifestyles for an extended period, are typically the one I think, what make up this all or nothing attitude toward the government, I think there's been, you know, that group has never experienced what it's like to actually live under, you know, hmm. a government that is totalitarian in nature or actually undemocratic completely, and really don't right. have a, a context for understanding there's, you know, I guess, a more they don't really, I think, look at moral relativism, As much as absolutism Mm -hmm. and so when there's one thing that goes wrong burn the whole thing down i think you see that on the left and the right um on the kind of more extreme sides of those parties and i think it has a lot to do with that i think if you actually went to the by and large base of both of those parties Mm -hmm. i think you would see a lot less singular outrage over one issue or another because in the end however dysfunctionally our government works it still does serve a significant portion of our country in some way. And I think that certainly the people that it's actually serving have many criticisms, I'm sure, because uh, for example, our social programs are far from perfect. And that was a really nice way to put that. Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: in the end, there are still people receiving ton, you know, services across the board from our government. And so Mm -hmm. while those are individuals that have many grievances, I think overall, they're not the same people that are saying burn it down. And mm. that isn't necessarily a data-driven thought. That's more of kind of a conclusion I'm drawing from some of the statistics out there in terms of engagement in politics yeah. and kind of thinking thinking through if these are the people who are most engaged and we're hearing the most from, perhaps that's the reason that it comes across this way. And maybe is one of the main reasons you see this huge disconnect and media generally being labeled as the elite in any form, Mm. because by and large, when you look at the proportions of people in the media or people engaged with the media, it actually really is that. Yeah. So I think that maybe it's not untrue. Yeah. So maybe that could inform, I think, some of the, I guess, disconnect both between media and then the general population, but then also this general increase, seeming increase of single issue, burn it down kind of attitude. Mm.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting point and in the the data you bring up certainly it's not it's not surprising, right? But it is it's uh I don't know what the best term is. It's it's unfortunate, I guess is what I'll say because yeah. it it's a it's a correlation that makes sense that the individuals who have the most generally are the most politically engaged, they have the bandwidth for it. They generally feel as though they have more influence, they have more capacity, they have more time to potentially actually have an impact on what's happening politically. And I think that's why a lot of people throw their hands up in the air is because they feel like their efforts don't really result in much. And I think once you reach a certain income level and you realize uh, when you have a certain amount of when, you're, when your individual circle reaches a certain level of influence, when you're you're maybe a few degrees of separation away from an actual politician or you're a few degrees of separation away from someone who owns a large company or whatever it is, I think you get closer and closer to that based on your income. And when you see that, you start to, A, I think just realize that if you're smart, not to be simplistic, but if you have the right aims and you have the money to do so, you can. You can control a lot of aspects of your life. You can there's a lot that you can do once you reach a certain level of agency. And I think people who don't own as much and who are living paycheck to paycheck just never get to that point in their lives, unfortunately, where they start to look at it from a bird's eye view and say, like, where can I pull strings? What affects me? How can I set up future generations? What what do I want to invest in? And so that sort of thinking is is very it's political thinking, right? It's it's kind of you know lowercase P political thinking. And uh I think a lot of people are just largely disengaged from that entirely. And it on some level goes back to trust that if if individuals feel as though it's the the things that they try to do, the actions that they take, their level of engagement is something that potentially could be distorted or not useful or that even if they do take the time put in an effort to try to you know influence change in the world that they don't necessarily trust the institutions to actually help that or to actually reflect what they want it it drives engagement even farther down and then you see one instance of I guess, as we were talking about before, even something like COVID specifically, that if, you know, an individual, it's already incredibly complicated. It's already very difficult to understand, to decide how to behave. Things have gone, you know, there's been such an ebb and flow to things over time. There's been so much to try to pull apart and to understand. And the average individual doesn't necessarily have the time or the bandwidth to figure it out for themselves. And so they see one inconsistency and they just say, oh, fuck, I don't know. It's too complicated. I'm just going to kind of fall back on whatever my party generally says. And I think more than people want to really acknowledge, I think that's the case with most of us, that when things get too complicated, we, we generally just fall back on our party lines. And so if an issue, it's, it's not our instinct to say, let me dig deeper. Let me figure out where I might be wrong about this. Let me really pressure this. It's just kind of like it, this one's complicated. I'm I'm just going to go with the people that I historically have aligned with. And I think that's where it gets ultimately very dangerous because when you have both parties at times pushing things forward, that. The average person wouldn't really support if they took the time to assess it for what it is, but the bandwidth isn't really there and the trust isn't fully there in uh, other sources of information. So it's just like, hey, these are my people. Uh, I feel like they're generally reasonable. So I'm just going to double down on that. Uh, And when that is, hey, this whole thing isn't real, um, that, that obviously becomes a very dangerous idea.
1: I guess the folks that are most disillusioned right, with the, the government themselves in a way that they're kind of expressing their outrage, mm-hmm. I think is coming from the people that the government doesn't really work that hard to serve because they don't mm-hmm. need partic- specific benefits or services from the government. You know, mm-hmm. and so the people that have the bandwidth to be looking at all these issues I think obviously this isn't always true, but I think generally speaking are less affected by them, you know, Mm. and I think that's even true. I mean, this is a bit controversial. Yeah, definitely a bit controversial, maybe to to, to consider it this way. But I think even when you look at kind of social movements that I think, you know, try to address injustice, inequality that are very real and systemic in our country, I still Mm. think just based on the way, And this could be wrong, but based on just listening to some of the heads of those movements speak and listening to kind of the, I guess, the platform of those movements, I still think the the representation is coming from what I said before. It's the people that are affected by these things, but maybe they're still in a position of heightened opportunity or privilege than the generally Mm. the large group of people who are supporting them. You know, and then I think, I guess my general kind of overall thesis, and I'm kind of speaking to it in a lot of different ways, is that when people are actually affected by issues that are going on in the country, and people are also actually affected by the specific policies of our government, Mm. I think those tend to be people that are actually less extreme than the Mm. people who have philosophies that the government are, you know, going against for example i guess something like recently in texas there is this horrifyingly strict abortion ban um Mm -hmm. that just happened and certainly it's an abortion ban i think there should be no other kind of descriptions of it people maybe were labeling it as a restriction but it is very clearly a ban Mm -hmm. and it's horrible and it's a huge you know i think civil and civil rights issue women's rights issue And the outrage over that is pretty significant. And I think that's appropriate on this issue, Mm -hmm. for example. But at the same time, those who are outraged by it and kind of speaking to this aren't necessarily the people who are in Texas who are really afflicted by this event. And then the leaders of those movements aren't necessarily the ones that are, you know, going through that difficulty. It's the people who are seeing this kind of... From their comfortable vantage point and looking at how bad of an injustice our government is doing and how what that represents, and more of the philosophy mm. of where that right. is leading us rather than here is how this has affected my life, and this is why I'm leading taking the charge to do something to make sure this doesn't happen. you know, I think that mm. overall that I think we would benefit i don't I don't know how you actually create you know probably things like campaign finance reform and having people right having that be an issue that you look at to affect this change maybe is something interesting to have the people who are most involved and engaged with the government on a day-to-day level be the ones who are actually you know the the ones who are running for office or the ones who are heading up these movements these social movements to try to affect change in outside of the you know a little more outside the system i mm-hmm. think that would be you can I don't know how you affect something like that happening and maybe to some degree it already is and there's a degree of ignorance i have for my own kind of bubble but i think that that would be something that would could make an impact on the overall extremist tendencies that we see in america today
2: right yeah yeah i mean it's a it's an interesting point and i think i guess it is so on on many levels because i think our our system Fundamentally, and I guess most systems that exist are something similar to a meritocracy, which I think sometimes maybe gets is a little bit of a misnomer, but that it generally selects for those who are the most privileged by various dimensions, but generally those who have the most access to resources, the most access to opportunity, generally get to the point at which they could have influence, that they could have a a voice of significance, that they could get to this tier of income in which they're able to start, as I said before, think in this more broadly political way, as opposed to just trying to get by on a day-to-day basis. And the average individual is just focused on basically what applies to them as an individual, maybe their immediate family. Maybe their small community around them, and then that's pretty much it. And they generally vote based upon that. And I don't necessarily blame people for that, but the people who, CRIs, who even largely have the conversations that we're having right now in regards to the quote-unquote greater good of a population, of society, and what is best for those who have the least... Are just by nature people who are out of touch with those problems themselves because if if you were having those problems you'd be dealing with those problems directly right. and not exactly. sitting around talking about it and it, it is clearly a fundamental problem as you spoke to it's it's hard to solve because even when you have initiatives it's something I actually discussed a bit on the podcast Uh, one of the earlier episodes in regards to kind of indigenous peoples and native American populations happen when, you know, they'll have seats on certain committees and uh, even certain political uh, positions of, of political influence that are designated for certain minority groups or what have you. But, it still selects for people who, sure, they have a certain ethnic background, but they still are the most privileged people of that group who don't really. I mean, sure, maybe they understand it better than the average person who's not in that group, but still, it still selects for people who have, you know, risen through the system that we have, which you know rewards people who generally have more and have access to more and who are set up to succeed better from a young age. So even when you try and say like, hey, let's get some more people from this group to to have a say in this or um, what have you, any initiative on that front, it sometimes falls flat because you still get people who are relatively disconnected from these problems, which in a lot of ways supports what a lot of my thesis tends to be on, on these sorts of problems that it's it's more socio-economic than it is uh, ethnic or, or racial or gender-based, and maybe that's controversial
1: to say. But so, that, do you think do you think America then is more racist or classist? Uh, that's a great question. Um,
2: I, I I would certainly say classist, and I, I think maybe it's important to define that. And I don't necessarily have a working definition for that, but at least the lens in which I'm looking at it through is, I think most things are more so a reflection of inequality of, of opportunity and relative wealth and wealth being essentially the the endpoint of opportunity and, and resource at a young age. And so... As that breaks down as far as what our, our class system looks like currently in America. I mean, obviously it's far more rigid in lots of nations in the world, but I think it's and I think we have some things in place that allow for, you could argue, more flexibility within levels than most countries in the world. Um, which I think is a good thing. I think it's one of the easiest places in the world to go from nothing, to, to go from below the poverty line to six figure income in in a single generation it happens but i think generally speaking part of the problem is that those who who have generational wealth there still are very much systems in place that support that never changing regardless of uh actual relative merit and I guess this is maybe a, a bigger a bigger topic but the fact that and it's it's not a uniquely American problem to, to make that totally clear that if you have the wealth and you have the desire to ensure that your children will go to Ivy League schools or the relative equivalent and make the right connections at a young age so that they will have job opportunities when they come out of college, and that they'll have the right support and resource that even if they're not great students, even if they don't apply themselves at a high level, even if they don't do all these things that we claim to be about in America, they still will be okay and they still will be wealthy and they'll still get good jobs in, in uh, a number of sectors in the US which are very streamlined In which if you take a, a certain path and you're supported through that path, you generally will become wealthy and will not have to worry about money and you'll kind of jump over a lot of the problems that common people face. Um, And and I say all that to say that I I think that is what allows income inequality to continue to grow as a problem because there's, there's less flexibility once you reach a certain tier and though still short, a certain number of people break through, It's uh, I think the floor is still much too low for a country that's as wealthy as the U.S. And I think a lot of the disparities in, in just a lot of the statistics that we look at, a lot of the numbers that we really harp on when we're trying to really elucidate these problems of, of race and of gender and ethnicity, And of ethnicity of, of all different kinds of minorities. When we look at them and we, we don't look at the socioeconomic data at the same time, we see these correlations. And of course, they're incredibly concerning. And there's things that need to be done. It's not to say that that's not true on some level, but I think we always have to look at the relative findings and I think a lot of research these days doesn't do that and so we don't see that a lot of these problems you could you could even look at something as simple as you know the number of let's just say African American students in Ivy League universities and then we could see that and say wow this is clearly not enough like I don't know what it is maybe it's four percent maybe it's five percent uh, don't quote me on that in, in any way, but we could look at it and, and look at the general population and say that's a problem. Like, what what's going on here? But because it's maybe I don't know six or thirteen, fourteen percent of the population, and so if it's right. if it's only half that, that's a problem. But if we look at the relative opportunity, wealth, resource that these this particular minority group has on average. It totally corrects for it and even more so. And so I think if if we were able to somehow solve the the wealth inequality that we, we see in this country only as it pertains to individual minority groups, I, I, I personally, as someone who's not racist, <laughs> think that we would see representation throughout, right? Uh, because I, I don't think that there's... There's real differences between these groups that are meaningful, and so I think that if everyone were given the same, the same foundation, the same resources, the same opportunity, if we had true, you know, equality of opportunity, I think in a generation or two, the the populations that you would see in, in all sorts of spaces in which we want to see more representation from minorities, um, of all of all sorts now we would see that as, as if everyone was given the same opportunity. But I, I don't know if that totally answers the, the class versus race problem, but that's at least how I see it.
1: Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And I would, I think, tend to agree with you that more broadly, class, you know, divides people even more than race. And I think, I don't think there is like a huge gap between the two. I certainly think it's close. We definitely have a lot of systemic racism, Mm. but I do think that at the very top level, if you had to tier them, right, I kind of, I kind of agree with your approach that class seems to have the most impact. But I think one interesting thing that that kind of idea that you were bringing raises, let's say we did, you know, magically solve for equality of opportunity all at once. And tomorrow we had, it right in America, I think you still have, I think what, I perceive as a pretty big difference in philosophy of whether in that world, right, so that doesn't exist equality of opportunity, but in the context of equality of opportunity existing, do you believe it's fair that who your parents are gives you a significant advantage or disadvantage in life? Right? So depending well, on even if they started out at a really, you know, depending on regardless, where you know, your parents started out there are certain their opinions or their philosophies or where they want you to live or where they want you to go to school, all that kind of stuff. And even the values they raise you on and what they, you know, what they're, how they're able to shape your worldview has such a dramatic impact on your overall success. And I think it's, an, I, I wonder if people today maybe don't really agree about equality of opportunity anymore as a construct. Certainly that's sort of the, if you have to look at the, my version of what idealism, the like ideal state of the country were to be, I think that one of the, its core tenets would specifically be equality of opportunity. But I do believe that there's maybe a growing sentiment that it should be more based on equality of outcome. I wonder if you feel that way, or if you've kind of maybe observed or perceived that trend and if you think that sort of relates to how would you go about solving the issue of, you know, you were saying representation across these different groups, if people don't fundamentally believe it should be based on an equality of opportunity? Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge question. And I think it's one that's being played out, potentially more so than, than any other in, in the public sphere right now, which is how we want to move forward in regards to I mean, I guess a lot of people put it as you know equality versus equity, or however it's it's commonly framed. I think it it at its core gets to the same thing, which is: do we want to look at outcomes, or do we want to look at opportunity, at least from at least from a relative standpoint? And I've I've yet to come across a a compelling argument for equality of outcome and how that is a sustainable solution and i think a lot of it is well intended i'm not going to lie but i feel like a lot of the conversation that is directed towards a quality of outcome i mean it's i think it's fundamentally a zero-sum game at base And, and i don't want to spend too too much time on why i feel that way but i think if we are just looking at outcomes it's almost fundamentally unstable, right? That if we get to some sort of point in which we see outcomes across the board that are what we want them to be, of course, those are going to change. And if we simply try to almost be puppeteers and, and say, we need certain, th- we need certain numbers, we, we want to see certain things happen. We play this game that a lot of even companies and, and universities are playing right now where it's like, okay, we need to have this percentage of of this group and this percentage of that group, so that we look good on paper, um, and so that we feel like we're doing the right things. And it's for me, it feels like it's only a matter of time before before trends change, before society changes, and then we're looking at this from a very different perspective. And we can't always play this game of let's just let's just try to fudge the numbers a little bit. Basically, let's try to pump uh, you know support into into one group over the next. And, and hope that that is going to solve very systemic, long-term problems that have existed for an incredibly long time and exists because of ingrained, you know, societal and cultural problems and norms. And to think that we could just do the quick fix and fix the numbers right now, and that that's going to be something that in a few generations is going to hold up, I, I just think is, is incredibly nearsighted. But of course, it's not like I'm sitting here saying that I, I fully understand what a solution could be. But uh, but I think equality of opportunity is something, A, that, that more people than – I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like the majority of people, even if it's a small majority, can get behind um, because people generally feel as though people ought to get what they – work for, and, and that people ought to be essentially judged for their merits in this country. And I'm not necessarily saying that I support it for that reason, but I think that's something that is somewhat fundamental to the American ethic, in that something that generally people can get behind on, on either side of the political spectrum, though I understand that As you're saying, it's there's a certain level of unfairness, right? There's a certain level of, well, you can't control who your parents are and what sort of resources you have access to as an individual. The environment in which I grew up in, I had no influence on. So it's not like that's something I can claim as my own or that my own doing that I went to X school when I was a kid or that my my parents pushed, you know, Z instead of Y. And, but, and of course that, that breaks all the way down to genetics, right? You, you don't actually choose your genetics right. and every aspect of that is, goes beyond individual agency. And so there is going to be this fundamental inequality in any system. And, and I think that is a uncomfortable, right? And fundamentally, because I think that's something we often don't want to talk about is that some level of inequality has to be there and b i think it's something that there's not really an answer to solve for equality as a whole without pushing totally towards something like socialism or communism right i mean there's there's really no way to establish equality across all fronts without saying without telling people exactly what they ought to do what they ought to be capping um, people's potential, deciding exactly, you know, being such, uh, you know, that invisible hand on society as a whole to decide exactly where people are going to come out in the end. And I, I think for a lot of reasons, we can't, we can't accept that as the only solution. And, and I think that's where, uh, you know, equality of outcome you know, becomes a zero-sum game is that ultimately there just are differences. People are different and some people are more capable. Some people have different genetic capacities than others. People have different inclinations than others. People have different interests. People are simply different. And in any system, you're not just, you would never just have equal outcomes simply by uh, eliminating any sort of bias. And there's a lot of research to suggest that when you actually make societies um, more egalitarian and this more relates to, I guess, gender and sex. But um, the differences actually grow when people have the opportunity to pursue anything that they want to, uh, to do anything that they want to. This expectation that that everyone would just be exactly the same uh, if we just leveled the playing field completely, I think is also a little bit unrealistic and and off base, But um, I'll let you jump in, because I feel like you've got something to say.
1: Yeah, I guess one of the things that you were kind of speaking to before not directly addressing, but kind of talking around, I think was affirmative action, right? And how you kind Mm. of think that you could see that system breaking down over the next couple of generations. And so I think what you're more speaking to is affirmative action based on economic need, rather than uh, right. racial statistics mm. and i guess you feel that, that might be a more sustainable long-term approach but to your point about you don't have control over the environment you were raised in you could be raised in the same town but you know be two houses over and therefore in the best versus the worst school district in the country right. and that could maybe have more of a impact on your i guess equality of opportunity metric if you will rather mm-hmm. than the amount of wealth that your family had when you know growing up and so i think maybe even more broadly than specifically looking at affirmative action based on wealth but looking at it based at distance traveled obviously this is a much more difficult Hmm. and probably impossible to put in terms of a metric right but if you had the least amount of access to education and the you know least amount of exposure to certain cultural norms and ideas that for example you know make you score higher in the sat just because of inherently the way they're written are you know benefits one group versus another in terms of socioeconomics and where you're from so Hmm. i wonder if you think that that is even more kind of going further would be a better approach of somehow being able to get to some sort of a, a distance traveled metric where you could say that how do you measure quality of opportunity and how much someone is deserving of something is based on where they started to where they are now, versus um, even looking at it from something as more very clear cut like finances or like race. Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a valid point, and it's something i I've, I've never totally thought about. And, and to be fair, this is something I've talked about quite a bit, uh, I guess personally, and even to some extent on the show. And um, it's it's a hard one to solve for for sure. And I think it's it's relevant to see. If we could track individuals' change over time and, and see where people are as compared to where they came from, uh, I think would be a uh, would be a relevant metric. But to be fair, I think, and and I'll try to address this quickly without opening up an, an entirely different rabbit hole. But I, I I personally don't I don't attribute much value as far as what an individual can ultimately be held responsible for. Sure, we can agree on things like genetics and, and childhood environment and all of that. But, but beyond that, as someone who, who sees things like free will and, and, and conscious choices the way that I do, I, I personally don't feel like there's any sort of value that we can attribute to an individual or, or fairness that we can find in a system purely based on ultimately outcomes because I think outcomes are, are largely out of our control as individuals and and again it, it's a hard thing to get into without really explaining why I feel that way but I, I, I do feel as though a system in which we eliminate as much of the extremes and the bell curve if, if you will I think is ultimately why I fall where I fall politically more than anything else, is that I I think the floor has to be higher, right? I think that given the fundamental inequality that we see in this world that we live in, whether it be genetic inequality or equality of opportunity or geographical inequality, which is a whole other thing, but I think very fundamental to the way that civilizations in the world developed, uh, just simple differences, as far as you know, you you had these resources as opposed to these, you could domesticate these animals as opposed to these, and how civilizations advanced. But I I think ultimately, especially in a country like America, we have to raise the floor because some people are going to get the short end of the stick, and that really fucking sucks, and I mean that like it's 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 awful the things that certain people have to face in America and globally, purely as a matter of luck, that you're just born into a situation where you are are a part of a system, you, and, and you have little agency as to how to transcend where you are based on certain conditions. And as much as we can raise that floor and say, even if you get the shortest end of the stick here, you will at least have a decent life. I think that's where we want to be. And we're not there yet, no, I think not we're a lot better off uh, in the U.S. than we are in most of the world, and okay. so I, I have to acknowledge that. But I think for the wealth that we have here, I think as as little as we can eat into the upside, as little as we can cap people's potential and uh, you know stop people from aiming high, while also establishing a better floor for the amount of wealth that we have in this country, and accept that there's going to be variance and then as I see it, we have to be comfortable with the fact that some people are going to get worse hands than we are. And it's not necessarily about feeling guilty about that, but it's about doing what we can to establish a good floor so that even if everything fails, even if everything goes wrong for an individual, they have they have basic fundamental needs met and they have a a reasonable amount of opportunity to get themselves out of that hole. And I think that's where we fall short Almost to the highest extent of, of, of any problem in this country is that for some people, and it starts, as I've said many times, it starts with education. That right? if you if you make it through K through eight in a, a school where it is, I mean, it is the difference between eighth grade and you know your, your final year of your PhD, essentially, in, in regards to what certain students are given at the elementary education level versus ones who just simply are in a better circumstance, are in a better district, are in a private school, whatever it may be, if we could close the gap between what that baseline is for for education so there's not students who are basically, you know, making it out of middle school, making it out of high school and have no tools to succeed and have no better opportunities than they would have had if they just hadn't gone to high school in the first place, and I, I think it on some level it has to start there because that's where that's where I feel like some of the the biggest where the gap widens the most is is when people come out of high school in the situation in the level of preparation and the level of even network that they have around them to succeed coming out of that is so different. It's, it's very hard to dig out of that if you are on the short end of the stick there and you're in a school where no one's invested in you, no one cares. Um, there's even an anti-intellectualism. It's it's a bad thing to be smart. It's a bad thing to excel. Uh, it, it's something that you have to try to hide. Uh, and it's the, the general culture there is that people don't care about you. And often that really is the case versus someone who, who comes out of high school with every expectation to go to any school that they want, to do anything that they'd like to with their life, even if they don't have uh, you know a trust fund full of money behind them, simply having that educational background that, that is strong, where they, they have the confidence to, to explore and, and, and do the things that I think all individuals are capable of. I think that's largely where we have to start. And of course, again, there's still going to be large amounts of inequality there and i'm not saying get rid of private schools i'm not saying that we can't uh we can't ultimately account for some degree of variance but the the gap is just so large there that it's people are leaving people are are entering this phase of life where you might say they're just beginning to have agency you know, I, in their teens where they're just beginning to start to make their own decisions and then get their feet under
1: themselves as individuals and it's already like you're fucked you know <laughs> or right. you, I, you're, you're yeah. good to go like you know I, I absolutely agree with you that education is the most fundamental way we can change you know outcomes and that overall that that's where the biggest inequality stems not only from a, to your point about schools, even from a cultural perspective, the way that they're, you know, viewing success and everything like that, but even right from the opportunity perspective, some schools, high schools, like I was very fortunate to go to a high school where my high school was harder than college. It was, the classes were just as rigorous. Most of them, you had every class that was offered in college was offered in the high school. And then your senior year, you were given an internship. So you already give you working experience before you got to college. And so obviously like I recognize, especially having then gone to college and met with all the different, you know, kids I went to school with, you know, very few of them had a school that went to a school that had that kind of opportunity. And that really does, I think those differences, I think to your point, uh, definitely set you up for success or set you up for failure very early on. And I think that is probably the best way. And most very clear, like bang for your buck, if you will, thing that we can do is to, raise the floor of what education looks like across you know all the schools in our country and also Mm. you know even from a more detailed perspective like completely transform what it means to have like a common core and what education looks like for all of the different learning styles that people have and there's you know Mm. a massive retooling that we can do but i would say one point that you were kind of speaking to which i guess i i think is probably relatively kind of the defining difference between i guess on the democratic spectrum anyway between maybe moderates and progressives is -hmm. the idea that raising the floor also comes with some lowering of the ceiling Mm -hmm. and i would say that's kind of where i disagree i think that looking at how high the ceiling is and looking at how low the floor is is obviously like juxtaposing the two is I think one of the main political movements in the country to speak to the disgusting level of inequality that we see, Mm. right? Just even the average CEO making 400 times more than the average employee, not even the bottom employee in the country. And so I think that that type of drastic inequality maybe brings the I think, very justified emotional reaction of how unfair and unjust the system is, which is true. Mm. But I do think that at least a difference I think I see and maybe the, not necessarily the way you were framing it, but the difference between these kind of two groups is that on one side you have, we need to lower the ceiling a bit to raise the floor and so that there's generally more equality. While mm. I think that the fact that the ceiling is so high makes the fact that the floor is so low, I think much more abominable, but I think the act of the policies and things you would need to do, like many of the things that you spoke to regarding education that would raise the floor would actually Mm -hmm. raise the ceiling as well. And so I think that is where there's, I think, even, I think a pretty large political disagreement in how to address these problems comes from that hypothesis as Mm -hmm. to does the very definition of raising the floor mean that we're equalizing and lowering the ceiling, which I, versus a rising tide lifts all boats. And if everyone, all of a sudden, the absolute floor was making $100,000, rather than the ceiling then being you know, one person will be a billionaire, like one person have one one billion. I think if anything, raising the floor that high would probably be what creates the first trillionaires and quadrillionaires. You know, like mm. I think that economy and in general money is not, I don't think a zero sum game. I think it is something, I think it's almost a way that w- we are indoctrinated in order to maintain the status quo mm. of the class divide. But I certainly think that, Money is not a limited resource. Money is created at infinite scale, at infinite speed, depending on, you know, the debt needs that our country has at the given time. It is a, you know, and we even created something 15, 10 years ago now, 2009, called the Unlimited Bank Balance Sheet, which gives the US the ability to generate and create unlimited debt and balance that without blowing up the economy. And we've utilized that to print trillions of dollars that we didn't have over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. And so I think it's largely a misnomer that the economy is a zero-sum game. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I probably don't have the uh, the economic acumen to, to really uh, understand what you're saying fully on that final point. But I I, I think you might have also potentially Misunderstood, my point being that I think we because I think I largely agree with you on that point specifically. I was mostly saying that we should. I guess you, your point was that I'm saying there is there has to be some give and take there that there has to be in order to raise the floor there has to be some uh, some detraction from the ceiling and i was more so saying that to say that we should try to lower the ceiling as as little as we can um and and saying that almost more so from a practical perspective that largely okay if we're going to make this massive overall of education where's the money going to come from right uh, and to right. increase taxes on the one percent of the one percent is by nature lowering the ceiling slightly right because your just some of some of your income some of your money at the, the highest level is going
1: away. Well, Do I don't I, know about that though actually. I think that's also where I disagree. I think for example, like when it comes to raising taxes, I think the average is 4% right now for the top 1%, but the actual tax rate the effect, the on paper the effective tax rate is supposed to be 39, right? So if we were able to make people we'll sure, just pay you what just was
2: actually enforce what we have. Right. Sure. Um, I,
1: but I think though if people at the, you know, at that level actually paid as we as we hear often their fair share, I think ultimately they would actually benefit the most from the wealth gener from that. I think they would acquire more wealth faster because yeah. ultimately to become a billionaire or to you know have enormous financial success in in this country, the systems that the country has created ultimately is what makes you able to do that, right? You have to live in a generally free society that generally promotes the creating of businesses that You know what i mean like there's many flaws but overall that has to be true for you to succeed and if you're paying your taxes in order to improve that structure anything all the way from you know infrastructure to education ultimately you'll have you know a larger pool of people to pull from for your workforce that are more educated that can provide better ideas that can grow your company faster you know there and then more people will be able to use use and purchase your products and services because more people have wealth and are also educated. So ultimately, I do think that the paying of taxes by that group, by the highest earners in the country, ultimately would would only serve to increase their wealth over the long run, which I don't think necessarily is a shared belief among everyone. But just I do think that certainly when you have a lot of and you know when you have that kind of money you generally won't agree to that because what you see taken from your check today hurts more than what the perceived you know potential future profit might be to you you know that million bucks extra you're paying now is going to be a lot harder to part with i suppose but Mm um i do think there's to some degree a a divide there not only in what the policies would do, but their intended outcome, right? Like I do think that there is certainly plenty of people that believe that some of the purpose of the intended policy is not only to raise the floor, but also to lower the ceiling because of how unjust it is or how unfair it is, right? Mm. Just the very nature that someone could have that much while someone has that little. So Mm. I guess I think the policies that look to do that are kind of are kind of ineffective and counterproductive because i think we could be using i think it's more of a question of utilization and like an economic term would be deadweight loss in the economy basically the money that is unused that just sitting there doing nothing i think that's much more what we can do something about rather than the idea that let's take from one group to give to another i think ultimately it would actually be much less effective while less appealing emotionally i think certainly um well sorry to put it it'd be more appealing from probably from an emotional perspective to take from one group and give to another right kind of you know the robin hood sort of story uh rather than everyone gets more including the people at the very top you know but i think that ultimately that looking at policies that would do that actually would do a lot more to raise the floor but Hmm. kind of goes beyond I think what we were speaking to before about just generally how to, you know, get get and create a system that is more based on equality of opportunity. But I I guess it kind of speaks to what's the most effective way to get there? Is it to try to balance the, you know, different group classes and groups in our society? Or is it about simply looking at how to raise the floor?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an intriguing perspective for sure. And, um uh, I think there's a lot of billionaires that would disagree with you. <laughs> but, <laughs> sure. You know, by nature, but I, I definitely like to leave a tab in it because I think it's, there's definitely a lot more to be said about it. Um, I think generally speaking, just to maybe make my final point on it, that I think a lot of it, and then this is in a very low fidelity way, but I think at least the idea that I was speaking to, and I don't necessarily know if this is even true, but what I was assuming to be true in my statement was that generally acquiring what we might call uh, absurd amounts of wealth becomes less attractive if the, the ceiling appears to be lower based on Taxes, regulations, whatever it may be, that it it just increases a barrier. Sure, obviously those who I'm not saying you know Bezos or, or Elon Musk is wouldn't wouldn't be a, they wouldn't be billionaires if the tax rate was higher. But just the general prospect of getting there is is just less, slightly even slightly less appealing. There's fewer people who say, "I'm just going to say fuck everything else and I'm going to make as much." wealth as I possibly can in my life. Uh, The number of people that are going to do that probably goes down if the tax code is reformed, better enforced, uh, whatever it may be. It just becomes a slightly less attractive prospect. And that might not be true, but that's just generally what I was speaking to and saying like, if, if we try to pull some money through enforcing taxes better, changing tax code, um, even regulating companies better, whatever it may be, because obviously a lot of these individuals' wealth is tied up in the wealth of these companies. So if we take action to, I think some action on that front is generally going to cut into the, the highest of the high end in that with that in mind, it just makes it it makes the it brings the ceiling down in, in a little bit more of a subtle way over time. But again, I, I do agree that it it doesn't necessarily fundamentally have to be that way. And I certainly don't moralize it and suggest that it ought to be that way. You know, sure. I, I just think that it's what I've been exposed to as far as the most common solutions or, or sources of funding to to do something like some sort of overhaul on, on a societal raising the floor level that would be necessary. Um,
1: But- Kind of, maybe going all the way back full circle here, kind of the natural course of the conversation starting from the political divide kind of came to this, the wealth inequality. So I think if anything, just the natural course of this conversation could point to specifically maybe our original thesis being true that wealth has the most to do And the representation of who is speaking about these issues has the most to do with kind of this continued political divide uh, that we perceive that is growing, whether it be true or not, but the voices that we hear being the ones that are, you know, the more influential and the wealthier ones, regardless of the group that they represent. uh, Perhaps maybe just based on where, like how this conversation went toward in that direction could really maybe point to the fact that that is what's going on in the political climate today. Do you think Maybe it's a coincidence, or do you think there's anything there? Uh yeah. I mean,
2: I, I, it, I think my instinct would to say that it's would be to say that it's not a coincidence. I think, again, I'll acknowledge it's maybe my bias, and I feel like it is our biggest problem it is mm-hmm. is our wealth inequality. Now, why I think that's the case, and how I think we ought to solve it. I think that's, you know, even more strictly an opinion, but I think that it is our largest problem, and it is what often divides us the most, and and even deludes us the most. Because I think a a lot of people don't realize what privilege really looks like and how much they have, even if we take away a lot of the variables that we've grown accustomed to talking about privilege the most in regards to uh, in, in the last couple of decades that I think if we're just looking at socioeconomics, I, I think that is is that that is the invisible hand that is doing more than anything else and that a lot of our political divide, a lot of the political unrest, a lot of the hate and division comes from seeing what others have and making judgments on that. Uh, and then that goes both ways, whether it be those who have less, those who have more and, and think less of those who have less, uh, those who are maybe somewhere in the middle and feel like they maybe ought to be in a different place or feel like those who, as we've spoken to, who represent them, who have the loudest voices in, in the media and in politics, don't understand their problems and don't represent them well. Um I think some dimension of, of how socioeconomics um within groups interact can can give us a very high fidelity picture of of what's going on behind the scenes if we look at almost any problem from that level. But again, that is just my opinion. But but I feel like that most often tells us all we really need to know to at least start. Um, and, and I think we've grown accustomed to. That maybe being just sort of an ancillary thought that is more so a, a product of of other social issues. And I, I think that's kind of a backwards way of looking at it. But um, I, I do think that at the end of the day, if we want to come to a better place and then have a healthier political landscape and climate, it has to come from a place of... of Pulling back on a little bit of the moralizing that we have grown so accustomed to doing in regards to politics and, and different even social issues or economic issues and saying that the people are evil or lazy or whatever it may be simply because of where they fall socioeconomically how they've been set up, the opportunity that they have and uh, starting to realize that a lot of this stuff is out of our control. And a lot of it is, is more so about what individuals have at their fingertips and how individuals are set up more than anything else so that we can stop saying making these snap judgments and, and feeling like there's so much distance between you know, us and them and, and those who are in my bracket versus another, even though it's, it's mostly just what you were born into and what you were set yeah. up with. But again, I get that a lot of people don't agree with me on that front. And that's totally fine. Uh, I think there's plenty of room for debate there, but I, I think the data—if if we really spend time and effort on focusing on it from that front—I I have a high degree of confidence that we would learn, we would learn a lot of interesting insights that are not being talked about enough. But I, I think that that'll be my final point on, on that matter.
1: Yeah. Um... I think that definitely what well, kind of what that brought to mind to me is also the idea kind of from the social media perspective that you have to have an opinion on every specific issue. And we spoke about bandwidth the last time I was on and the expectation that you could have an informed opinion about 200 different positions and actually care and have a sense of outrage in the positive or negative sense when way, you know, mm. is sort of this bar that's been set by the nature of the way things are packaged online. And I think that also contributes to the to the divide where you may not feel very strongly about something, but then Oh, well, the person in your circle or your speed, you know, echo chamber believes that so that has to be part of your belief system rather than it be hmm. a position that you have, I think it's much more also tribal, it's much more about your team. Now, it's much more about whether it's part of the the entire platform of your party, where your party is so big that you can't possibly if we really were to do it, you know, if this is if it, we thought about it more honestly, maybe there's no way you can have an opinion or a position on every aspect of how the country ought to run. There's just <clears throat> no person I don't think in the country that would have the kind of bandwidth to do that. There's just so many different issues. That's why we have, you know, more than, you know, five people in our bureaucracy to run the, you know, the <laughs> country. There's just too many different things to look at. But I think we're forced to have these If you think this, then you're in one camp. If you think this, then you're in the other. And if there's anything in the middle, then you're sort of outcast by both and Hmm. almost feel, I guess, disenfranchised in a way and could contribute to also the very low... While, you know, there's differences in engagement, still, generally speaking, overall low engagement across the board compared to other places in the world. Hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's... I think it's a whole whole different ballgame really once you start getting involved with with social media echo chambers and how that maybe feeds into or even sources a lot of these problems um and, and i think it's a it's a dimension certainly worth giving its its time and space um so on that note i'd like to put a pen into it uh for today but we will certainly use that as a jumping off point um, for our next conversation. But before we totally wrap up and, and before we, I guess, kind of in essence, set the agenda for next time, because I, I'd like to do this more regularly, be I'm curious if there's a, I know you spoke to it maybe just slightly at the beginning, but if there's anything notable that you've you've kind of changed your tune on or, or done 180 on since since the last time we spoke or even since the, the beginning of this conversation uh, i'm just curious if there's anything that or even something that you're feeling a little bit more fluid on and that you'd like to explore next time that be a space in which you feel like your ideas that maybe you still hold pretty firm um that you're starting to feel a little bit more fluid on
1: Sure. Yeah, I think I kind of two things come to mind there. One that I sort of already brought up earlier in the podcast, which was the idea that the kind of some of the fundamental problems and differences in our in the country that have kind of come up over the last four years, aren't the necessarily weren't even necessarily just being amplified by a cult of personality that it's absolutely To the core systemic part of the the culture Mm. and the belief system of at least about a third of our country is that is that philosophy however you want to you know morally assess it it's certainly i don't think honestly was pretty surprised that it didn't die out much faster with this change of administration obviously Mm -hmm. i expected there to be some holdouts and overall it to be somewhat contentious for the first couple months but to sort of see that there was no I I haven't observed any cultural change at all or when it comes to fake news or when it comes to any of those type of paradigms. So I guess that was kind of a bit of a gut punch. I think I was pretty optimistic about that compared to other people that Mm. this was just sort of a blip. And obviously Mm. I thought, you know, I wasn't naive enough to think that, oh, America is all of a sudden racist or something like that now that, you know, obviously we've had these systemic issues that have been growing over time. Mm um in some ways getting better but in some ways growing right um and that was definitely a bit of a reality check and something that certainly existentially concerns me about even like how long can this experiment survive i think even to biden's Mm -hmm. um i think what was it in his uh opening state of the union that's what i was looking for in his Uh, state of the union he spoke to the fact that one of the the kind of the main thing that he sees about the 21st century is proving that democracy as a model works compared to the other models that exist around the world that are relatively from an economics perspective successful today. And so Mm -hmm. I think that I sort of agree there that that seems to be the existential battle we're fighting. Whereas I didn't think that was a battle that we were going to have to fight. So I guess Mm -hmm. that would be the biggest like shift in perspective. As to where we are and what the main issues are. Um, and then, something that secondarily is more something I'm more kind of open to and want interested to explore is when we talk about the base of a party, like what does that hmm. really mean? What do those people actually think? Because one of the things that I feel like my assumptions about what does a quote unquote progressive stand for versus what does quote unquote a moderate stand for. I think it's almost only perceived in caricature form. Like there is, I don't feel Mm -hmm. like one of that's kind of the difference in what I'm thinking now versus maybe a year ago is that I feel like before I thought I had a really good understanding, here's what this group thinks. And here's what this group thinks versus now, I think that's much more of an illusion that's been, you know, created like two platforms that have been created online Mm -hmm. somewhere. And then we've just sort of decided, oh, you're this or that. Kind of the same way we do Democrat Republican and I'm definitely curious to sort of you know have more conversations with people that I might might very like define themselves in those buckets very clearly and actually get an understanding of what is the philosophy that they have because hmm. I guess one of the assumptions that I'm thinking now or my changing hypothesis would be that people's opinions are actually more much more vastly different even across agree like you know tribal groups than people Mm. think and that is much more unified only based on the need in the in the in our current system to be on one team or another to get your party elected and the fact that you have this monolith of opinions or in the democratic party right like progressive moderate is kind of the two monoliths i don't know if there's a word for two Mm -hmm. monoliths but yeah um, i I couldn't tell you (laughs) i think that That's an assumption I really want to test and kind of get an understanding of what do people in this quote-unquote camp actually think, and is there any value in it at all, or does it only exist to serve the purpose of having your team win in this flawed two-party system? Hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'd certainly like to explore that a bit more myself, and I think it does potentially raise some, some interesting questions about what the future of, of our just our political landscape is fundamentally and if there is a, a potential for I guess more division uh, across party lines and, and different groups or third party alternatives or well, whatever it may be, a more competitive and, and potentially egalitarian uh, I guess running situation on a, on a cycle-to-cycle basis so i'll i'll definitely keep a tab in that for for next time because there's there's a lot to be said there but uh yeah i i I certainly enjoyed this one and again i'd like to do it more regularly and and just kind of keep this going as as things evolve and change in the world and as we see how this administration pans out and and all the, the new challenges that it faces i I'd love to continue to have you on as, as someone who enjoys getting into this side of things. I know some people get a little bit exhausted with it, but I, I think it is is—I think it is important to talk about it, even if in uh, moderation <laughs> and uh, yeah, hopefully we've giving people something to think about and, and potentially something to look forward to in, in our next conversation. So Adam, I appreciate you and uh, I'll see you next time. Irene. Thanks, Brandon. Forward to speaking soon.
0: Alright, sounds good. Thanks you for joining. So if you've made it this far, hopefully it's because this project has resonated with you in some way and added value to your life. And if so, it would be great if you could take that next step to do any of the things that people are always asking you to do. Subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share with a friend, give us a follow on social. I know it can feel like a chore. I get it, but it is all rather simple and easy, <laughs> a lot easier than listening to this whole episode. So any support really does mean a lot to me and goes a long way towards helping this show and its message grow. The simple fact that you're still listening at this point already makes this whole thing worth it for me. Anything else is just gravy. Remember, again, please do send your questions and topics to @impostersanon on Instagram and Twitter i welcome them all and would love to hear from you and oh if you could be interested in coming on this very show shoot us a message seriously there are no requirements i'm always looking for new guests with unique perspectives i don't care about how many followers you have or where you went to school and i certainly don't want to read your resume i just like having interesting candid conversations so why not You're all already a part of this project in my eyes, but I'll give it a rest for today. Thanks again. Your perspective is valuable, and I'll see you next time.